The statements expressed in the following program are those of the speaker. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the sponsor, the hosts, and or Olas Media. Olas Media. This is Overdue Overtime, presented by Summer Schwartz. And now, here's your host, Justin Isaac. Welcome to Overdue Overtime, hosted by Summer Schwartz. My name is Justin Isaac, and I will be your guide today. Uh, Thank you for joining us again. This is our second episode of our podcast series. And what we're talking about is this is the first part of a two-part series, and we've been calling it a day in the life of a plaintiff, a day in the life of someone who is bringing a lawsuit or bringing an action. And we hear about lawsuits all the time in the news. We don't really hear about the behind the scenes portion, what really actually goes on and what it's like to be in that in that process. And Summer Schwartz is the, the sponsor of this show. And on their website, it does say your future, our fight. And today I'm joined by Jesse Young. And Jesse, we have a lot to talk about, but I wanted to go over that kind of slogan that you have on the website and what that means. How does that work in with what we're talking about when it comes to bringing in action, when it comes to uh, being a plaintiff in a lawsuit? Uh, Justin, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to discussing all this with you. Um, so your future, our fight. I mean, that really is the mantra of our firm. Um, you know, our firm takes on primarily individuals against companies, corporations, um, and the like. And so really what that speaks to is, you know, how do you take on um, your employer in this context? Um, and how do you go forward um, and, and rectify any wrongs that have been done uh, by your employer in the context of unpaid wages, um, overtime, things of that nature? So I think that what I like about this slogan too, and and just for the listening audience, I'm an attorney as well. I'm based out here in California and San Diego, but I do estate planning. I don't deal, this is a completely foreign field of law. Um, and I know a lot of people are under the impression that attorneys know everything about every single law, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, so I do have a, uh, my background is in a different field of law, but what we're taught in law school is to be a, a an advocate for your client. Take on the fight. Now, you don't want someone to take it personally. You want to have uh, so, an attorney who's going to be able to help and and remove themselves from the emotion because as a plaintiff, you are inherently more emotional. And that's why you have attorneys because we are supposed to come in and, and just go by the law. But I like the slogan of our fight because what it means is Summer Schwartz is it, you guys are taking on the fight with the client. You are participating not just as an attorney, but you're really trying to advocate for the client and, and make sure that they are compensated or uh, made whole for maybe something that their employer has kind of taken from them. Is that, does that sound about right, Jesse? Yeah, sounds exactly right. And, you know, I would add to that. I think, you know, we do we don't uh, get emotional about these cases. Uh, we try not to um, take it to that level. But, you know, I, I would say we do take it personally yeah. uh, on behalf of our clients. Um, you know, our clients' problems become our problems in the case. Yeah. And so, you know, what we try to do is step up for our clients. And in the context of, of wage and hour, um, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, our job is to go back and, and right a wrong uh, to fight for them to recover the unpaid wages and um, to put them to make them whole. Right. And to put them back in the position they should have been in before they called us yeah, uh, to come fight for them. So, yeah. You know, that's, and that's and really, I, right. Sorry to interrupt there, but I, I know you mentioned the Fair Labor Standards Act, and I, I kind of want to talk about that. If you can just give us a quick little summary uh, it seems like this pertains a lot to what what you guys deal with on a daily basis. So the Fair Labor Standards Act um, is primarily what we focus on in our practice group. We have a at our firm we have a practice group that's dedicated to wage and hour issues. Uh, again, primarily the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, we also deal with state laws that tend to mirror the Fair Labor Standards Act, and just as a very, very general overview of the Fair Labor Standards Act. It protects employees um, against unpaid wages, including the minimum wage and mm-hmm. overtime. Um, there's really just the two buckets. Now, there's a lot that's uh, involved in either the minimum wage or overtime violations, 
but that's generally speaking what the act is designed to protect. Yeah, that that from like a <clears throat> 10,000 foot view gives us a good idea. Uh, everything really sounds like it goes through the the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a mouthful in and of itself. Um, but it, it seems like everything revolves around that. Um, and I know that there's a lot of lawsuits. I, I love talking about the, the amount of lawsuits uh, that get filed every year just in general. But it seems like there was a lot uh, last year. I looked at the notes here, 6,400 lawsuits uh, filed under the Fair Labor Standards Act last year alone. Um that seems like a lot. And I know that you guys deal with this a lot too, but really what it comes down to, I guess, is what people are hoping to achieve is to hold their employer accountable uh, for unpaid wages. So let's talk about how does that work? How can you, through the Fair Labor Standard Act, how can you hold your employer accountable for unpaid wages? What does that entail? Sure. So yeah, and just to touch on what, what you just pointed out, I mean, <clears throat> the Fair Labor Standards Act has been, uh, it's been in existence since 1938. This is not a new statute. And, you know, I would say over the past 10 years, uh, you know, we've seen quite an up uptick in these cases, uh, both in the collective action context and individual cases. Uh, and as you pointed out, last year we had about 6,400 cases on file in federal courts across the country. Uh, we expect probably the same number in 2023 and maybe even more. Um, so, I think there was, a, there was a little bit of a lull due to COVID. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's ticking back up, um, you know, higher and higher every year. Why do you think we've seen a more recent sharp increase? Do you think that uh, it is because there's more violations by employers or they think they can get away with it? Or just people are feeling a little bit more comfortable coming forward? What do you think that might be? Well, it could be, that's a loaded question. It could be, it could be a lot of things. Uh, you know, it could be employers trying to find a way to save a buck. Uh, it could be, um, you know, as most people have heard in the news, there's wage disparity now that's, you know, becoming uh, a bigger and bigger gap, it seems like every year. And so some people are getting fed up with um, how much they're getting paid or how they're getting paid. Uh, they might be paying more attention to, um, you know, overtime violations or off the clock work or whatever it might be. Uh, it could be any number of things. Uh, it could also be more attorneys, um, you know, looking to file these kinds of cases. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure, but, um, you know, certainly the numbers stand for themselves. Uh, these cases are um, being brought and they're being brought every day. Yeah. There's uh, it, I mean, that's death taxes and, and lawsuits. It's just a part of what happens in our society. And, uh, United States is pretty litigious in general, and I'm sure there's ways to to avoid this. Or you're, you know, obviously everyone tries to avoid this. But say you have a situation where you've noticed, you know, unpaid wages at work, where you're not getting uh, compensated for some of the hours that you you have worked. Do you? What's the next step? What would you recommend for someone to do at that point? Sure. Yeah. So you know, if if an employee recognizes at work that in some way or another, they're not being paid correctly, whether it be off the clock work or the, the employer is just not calculating the, the wage correctly or just flat out not paying the employee what they're supposed to be paid. Um, it's always an awkward issue to raise with the employer, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, we get that all the time when, when clients call in, you know, hey, I don't think I'm being paid correctly. I'm afraid to tell my boss about it. Uh, I'm afraid of what they might do. Uh, you know, I might be, I might be fired, I might be demoted, I might be um, ridiculed, whatever it might be. Um, we get that a lot. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people who are concerned about bringing unpaid wages up with their employer. And I bet the number one question I get <clears throat> from clients or potential clients is what about retaliation? I'm worried my employer is going to retaliate against me if I mm -hmm. if I complain or, or make a stink about this. Um, and so we get that all the time. And it's important for people to understand under the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, there is an anti-retaliation provision built into the statute itself, which basically says if you complain to your employer about unpaid wages, um, or if you file a lawsuit, or if you testify in a, in a wage and hour case of any kind, even if you're not in the case, um, 
your employer is not allowed to retaliate against you under the law. And if they do, uh, there's a mechanism for the employer to, I'm sorry, for the employee to go after the employer for, you know, for that, whatever that might be, whether that's a wrongful termination or just a retaliation claim uh, itself. Uh, there are built-in protections for employees um, if they do raise this as an issue with their employer. I think that that is a critical component of this legislation because if you don't have that in there, you would not see as many cases. There, In my mind, there's just no way. And that is such an important thing to know uh, to ease the mind of a plaintiff uh, or someone who is thinking about bringing an action that you are protected. You do have that protection that a lot of people just don't think you have. And I think that culturally speaking, we have this mentality where you just keep working, keep grinding, keep going and and don't complain. And, you know, it's a very old school mentality of how things work. And I feel like we're kind of churning the, the corner here with this new generation, especially during COVID that they are, there's a lot more workers who are, are standing up for themselves, standing up for their rights. And I agree that we're probably going to see an uptick even more in these uh, labor issues because bosses and um, and you know management tend to be a little bit more old school and maybe slow to adjust. So it, having those having that ability to have a resolution uh, protection from retaliation, I think is such a critical component in in the whole process of uh, bringing an action. Um, and, and so I guess if you have this. Uh, ability to be compensated or have some kind of protection for retaliation. A lot of people might think that it's it's very expensive to hire an attorney, uh, and, and it can be. But there's a lot of ways to make this work, uh, depending on your situation, depending on the violation. So, w- what are your thoughts about when someone says, "I, you know, I don't want to hire an attorney because it's just so expensive, and I don't want to pay out of pocket, you know, hundred thousand dollars. I can't afford that." I'm sure you get that thought a lot or that said to you a lot. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and just to piggyback on one other thing you said, you know, I think you're right. Um, nowadays, I mean, when I was, when I was, before I went to law school and I was working and, and a lot of people that are my age, um, you know, if you complain about wages at work, you, you probably would get the response. Well, just suck it up. And this is yeah. how it is. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your complaints would often just not be even addressed in the first place. And I, I think you're right. We're seeing a willingness now from the younger generations to actually say, you know, this isn't right. And they're more willing to put their foot down and stand up and uh, and say this isn't right. I, I think we're seeing that for sure um, with, you know, our clients. You know, the younger they are, it seems that uh, the more willing they are to uh, stand up to corporate America and, and the employer. Um, so, you know, going back to your, your immediate question though, it, you know, when those complaints are not addressed by the employer and we get a phone call or an email from a potential client, um, also one of their first questions is how much is this going to cost me? And, and the answer to that is, uh, not much, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act itself, um, in addition to providing for anti-retaliation it also provides that your attorney's fees and costs are supposed to be paid by the employer. And on a settlement or a judgment against the employer, uh, the payment of your attorney's fees and costs are actually covered and they're mandatory to be paid by the employer under the statute. So, you know, contrary to what people think and maybe what a lot of people think about lawyers and generals, you don't always have to pay them by the hour at these uh, hourly rates. A lot of times, uh, statutes like this will cover their attorney's fees for them. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that is a very common thing. If you watch Suits, you'll see, you know, like Harvey Specter. I used to love that show too. Uh, and then it just got a little bad towards the end. But Harvey Specter starts off and he's, you know, a $1,000 an hour or something like that. And I, I actually was just following, uh, there's a case out in England with one of the soccer teams who's made some kind of violations. Um, and they are hiring like the top lawyer in the UK charges 80,000 pounds a day, a day. (laughs) And I thought, wow, I would love that job because that is, uh, well, that's a nice, nice living, but this is not that, uh, type of situation. Obviously this is a lot different, 
Um, and we're not dealing with these uh, these types of violations, especially that is so specific. But I just I saw that yesterday. I figured I'd add that in because I, I just found that to be amazing. And I definitely am a lawyer in the wrong country. Um, 80,000 pounds a day is just amazing. Uh, so anyways, yeah, that is a nice thing, a nice component as well that someone doesn't have to come out of pocket because I get this a lot too in my practice where, uh, you know, there are certain situations where people feel aggrieved and they don't necessarily have the money to do anything about it, which is again, part of that catch 22 where you don't want to complain because you might get your hours cut and you can't afford that in the first place. Right. And, you know, add on top of that, the, the most of the people who uh, reach out to us on these cases are usually low wage workers, right? Yeah. These are usually, you know, people who are making an hourly wage and sometimes it's just above the minimum wage. Uh, for example, here in Michigan, the minimum wage is now $10.10 an hour. So if mm -hmm. you have somebody who's making $11 an hour, you know, they're not going to be able to pay an attorney. Yeah. So that's the whole reason that the statute provides uh you know, for the payment of attorney's fees. And so, you know, these, these lower wage workers can have access to the justice system and access to attorneys who are actually willing to step up and file a federal lawsuit yeah. uh, if, if they're owed $500. You know, normally, unless that protection was in the statute, you know, you would not see 6,400 cases filed uh, in a year like we're seeing. Yeah. And, and, that's such a it's such an interesting thing too because I, I feel like this all kind of goes in this one big circle of you know I, I can't afford to say something uh, but you technically can't afford not to say something as well too because it's just gonna keep on happening it will probably get worse uh, and and when you do say something you have those protections and I think that's probably the biggest thing in this show that we really need to get get out to everyone is that, you still have protections if you say something. And so many people don't know that. And you don't have to come out of pocket for $100,000. Uh, it is something that's all incorporated with, which, you know, obviously very specific. And they need to, if someone has something like this, they have to call you. So you need to call Summer Schwartz um, and, or, or go to the website, uh, summerspc.com, S-O-M-M-E-R-S-P-C.com. Um, and I am joined by Jesse Young, and we're talking about a day in the life of a plaintiff. And we've kind of jumped over a couple different things here, but let's get back into what it's like when we're starting off as a plaintiff. Uh, so if you, you've you noticed that you've had these unpaid wages at work, and what's the next thing you do? So you you consult, you hire a law firm, you go to Summer Schwartz, you talk to you, Jesse, about this, and, and how does that how does that go? What, what do people sure. experience at that point? Yeah. Yeah, so typically uh, when you reach out to our firm, uh, what typically happens is we have, uh, we have quite a bit of staff that uh, are very attentive, very thorough. Uh, we rely on them uh, extensively, the attorneys do, to, uh, to do this work. And one of the first people you're going to speak with when you contact our firm, uh, we have an intake specialist who uh, will you know, ask a whole bunch of questions about your situation try to get a feel for what the situation is. And uh, she will ask for documents uh, such as pay stubs or time records, uh, things of this nature. And then once she gathers all that information, uh, that information then gets forwarded to the attorneys for review. Uh, you know, once we have it in our hands as the attorneys, we, we do meet pretty regularly uh, every week or two and we review all the, the new potential cases that have come in. And we sit down at round table uh, you know, which cases are interesting, which cases have merit, which ones may not have merit. Mm -hmm. And we use those meetings to then make decisions on which cases uh, we should take and which cases we can't take. Yeah. And I, I, I know just in my firm, having a good front line for people calling in is, is so vitally important because we want to make sure that we're not uh, wasting someone's time. We're not wasting our own time. And I imagine your intake specialist gets asked a lot, you know, do I have a good case? Uh, do I, am I going to win? Is this a clear cut violation or something of that nature? And, and just for everyone out there who is thinking about calling a law firm, usually the first person you talk to cannot give legal advice. They, you, you probably aren't going to speak to an attorney right off the bat. Um, and by law and ethical standards, you are not allowed to give legal advice unless you are an attorney. And we have to be right. very careful about how we talk 
when we're speaking to someone too. So this intake specialist, I imagine, plays a vital role in getting and extracting the most important information. Uh, but they also have to have a soft touch too, because this is a, a very delicate situation. And so after the fact, once you do the intake, all the attorneys are talking about it, we figure out or you figure out what's going to be your your best case or um, do you have kind of a hierarchy of cases that you want to move on to next or if one violation goes away or one potential case goes away you have one that's on deck to be pushed forward is it kind of a situation like that or is it just these are our prime cases and we want to focus just on these and have to kind of refer the other ones out well it's a combination of that uh justin it's it's you know we, we obviously keep up on the laws uh, and there's new opinions being issued every day by the courts, by the Supreme Court, by the courts of appeals. And we're constantly monitoring what's going on in the wage and hour uh, field. And so depending on, you know, what's going on, we, we may I- identify a new set of cases that we want to pursue uh, mm-hmm. that we think is interesting, uh, that we're seeing a lot of. Maybe if we see some trends starting to come in the door, uh, mm-hmm. we start to focus on those a little more. Uh, but there's also, you know, your, your, what I'll call the tried and true wage and hour cases, you know, your off the clock work, your regular rate calculations, and there's just so many different kinds that are always going to be uh, in play and, and, and a problem um, in the workplace. And so, you know, the, the best way I can answer that is, you know, we see all kinds of different cases. We don't particularly focus on any one type of case. There mm-hmm. might be some trends here and there, but if somebody notices they're not being paid correctly, they should reach out for sure and just have their case evaluated. And we're pretty good at spotting cases. Yeah, I imagine you have, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, these kind of slam dunks where it's just a clear cut violation. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. You're not going to go to a jury. Uh, it's going to just be, you know, an easy, not easy, obviously, they're never easy, but it's just a clear, more clear violation that allows for a more clear either uh, litigation or settlement. Um, Do you have anything that comes to mind of just a more like I like the over the top egregious case? Do you have anything that is just such a clear cut violation that you almost kind of laughed from it? Anything like that come to mind? Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, We just filed one this morning. Um, And so the one we filed this morning, uh, it's called a regular rate violation. And essentially what happened uh, in that case, um, and it, we have an, a number of these kinds of cases, but the employer is supposed to take a shift premium or a shift differential and calculate that into the overtime rate. Um, mm-hmm. And this is all, you can just look at the pay stubs themselves and figure out if this is a case or not. And many times the employer gets it wrong and simply mm-hmm. does not make the right calculation and and the employees not getting the proper amount of overtime paid to them. That's the one we just filed this morning. Um, You know, we see those cases a lot. The other one that you kind of mentioned that I kind of laugh when I see it, and that's this case. That's where somebody's working uh, more than 40 hours in a week. Let's say they work 50 hours in a week, and the employer's just paying them their regular base hourly rate for the full 50 hours. Uh, They're not not even trying to pay them time and a half for their overtime. And again, you see that right on the pay stubs. Yeah. And so, you know, when you say, you know, you see one that kind of makes you chuckle. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the classic case. And we've had a number of those cases, too, believe it or not. There's employers, sometimes big employers that just totally screw it up. So, yeah, they're out there. I I guess this kind of I have a, a well, as we're talking about filing a lawsuit and how it works, my thought immediately as a lawyer would be you're going to have a lot of employers who will try and bring into a lawsuit maybe their um, their own company or a, a, a secondary company that does their their payroll. Uh, a lot of companies do not do payroll in-house. Most companies don't, I would say. And they have a payroll company that helps out with this. So the, the first thing I would think is uh, if anyone came to me, any of my employees came to me and complained about hourly wages, I would fix it right away. I, that's just, I, I, I like, you know, as an attorney, we're um, very <laughs> adverse to lawsuits against ourselves. So we always want to fix things and make things right. And I just want to do that as a person as well. But I imagine that a business in general would say, well, no, I my payroll company screwed that up. And I don't think that that's my fault. Is that a pretty common thing when we uh, are starting to see lawsuits being filed? 
Um, I wouldn't say it's extremely common. I think I've I've run into that argument before, mm-hmm. but you know, typically the in my experience anyway, the payroll company is typically just paying the employees the way the employer is telling them yeah. to pay them, and, yeah. and usually they're relying on the employer's information and records to pay the employees. So, you know, I, I've heard that argument in the past. I, usually it doesn't hold up uh, yeah. when, when we actually examine it. And and so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a great defense for an employer. I would think it so. does come up from time to time. Sure. Yeah. So when we're, we're filing a lawsuit, say we get past this uh, initial consultation, you meet with the intake specialist, uh, mm-hmm. and now we decide, you know what? Summer Schwartz says you have a good case. If you want to take it further, we're happy to start with it. And myself as the plaintiff, I say, okay, let's do it. What happens next? Sure. Yeah. So once we identify um, a case as something we want to take on, uh, what typically happens is uh, our paralegals will get involved at that point. And uh, we have, you know, every law firm in America has retainer agreements. So mm-hmm. we have our own, of course. And so we send that out to the client. Um the client will take a look at that, uh, ask any questions they have. Um, and once we have that retainer agreement uh, signed, that gives us the green light to go to work, right? Mm-hmm. We're now officially hired. We can start drafting the complaint. We can start really digging in, into the case um, and, and get the lawsuit ready to file. Um, you know, as part of that whole process, we've got to figure out, you know, what claims are we actually bringing? You know, do we have the Fair Labor Standards Act claim? Do we have any state law claims that are similar that need to be brought? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that all depends on where the employee worked typically. And, um, you know, so we'll evaluate that. And then we also need to evaluate at the same time, you know, where are we filing? What makes sense? Or where do we have to file? Right? Yeah. And that's usually the state or the federal court where the employee actually worked. It's so interesting, too. And this, this is something I wanted to bring up uh, about what you do. There, a lot of people don't know or just fail to recognize that there is a vast amount of federal law. And then you have to also have your state law and compliance in both is a rather tricky thing. And so if you have a situation like this, where you can file in federal court or state court, or both even, um, you have to be very well versed in so many different things that come up. And I, my practice, uh, estate planning, I just deal with state court. I don't do any federal, which is, you know, I feel very blessed for that. Um, but at the same time, having a, a federal standard and in most of the states, you said kind of mirror the federal legislation, but there's got to be nuances here and there. So what would be the advantage, uh, just, you know, a, a quick off the top of your head, if you could, for filing in state versus federal is one easier to navigate is one uh, a little bit more expeditious and and quicker, or are they both kind of the same? Well, it's, it depends what state you're in. Um, I think the biggest driver of, of the answer to that question is going to be uh, the state statute that you're looking at. I mean, some Mm -hmm. state statutes provide greater protections than the fair labor standard act. For example, California Mm -hmm. um, is, is the notorious, uh, employee friendly state. Right. And so, you know, when you file a complaint in California, you're always, you know, looking at the state claims in California because there's so many of them versus Mm -hmm. just the one federal claim. And so, you know, there's other states that are similar to that. You know, I think we've, we filed quite a few in Nevada and Illinois and Mm -hmm. some other states that are, you know, the state statutes are just more protective than the federal statute. And so, you know, that's probably the biggest driver of of the answer to that question, I think. Okay. Just yeah. So more state specific that I, and that's a typical lawyer answer for everyone listening to it depends. Yeah. Well, I, let, I, let me add, let me add to that too. If, if we're in a state, because some state statutes, uh, like for example, in Michigan, the overtime statute almost is identical, if not identical to the fair labor standards act. So when you bring a, a claim for overtime in Michigan, you you really can't bring the state statute because it's preempted by the federal statute. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, so in, in Michigan, if you're filing an overtime claim, unless there's some strange circumstance, you're going to be filing in federal court. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, the, the it depends thing. I, I'm sure if you had a dollar for every time you said that, <laughs> you'd probably be a multimillionaire. That's a such a lawyer-like answer. But we have to say that too. As I mentioned, we have to be very careful about what we say 
because context matters uh, with our response for everything that we say. Yeah. Um, and it really does depend. I mean, it's, yeah. it is absolutely true. It depends on it's, a lot yeah. of things. It's not a dismissal. I just that's uh, <laughs> that's the main thing to know is that we are not dismissing or trying to avoid what you're saying, but it actually does depend. Um, right. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, anyways, uh, back to kind of what we're talking about, and and just to recap, we are talking about a day in the life of a plaintiff of a lawsuit being brought against your employer. Um, and I'm I'm joined by Jesse Young of Summer Schwartz. Um, and uh, we're going to I'll give out all the information of how to reach out to Summer Schwartz in just a little bit as well, too, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are thinking, all right, I'm with you so far We're uh, we got to the the point where I noticed that I don't have some of my wages on my paycheck. Um, I, I'm ready to hire a law firm. I've, I've talked to the Summer Schwartz uh, intake specialist and ready to file a suit. When we get to a point now where we're looking at this and we're saying, OK, it, should I just be going on my own or should I be filing as a class, like a class action? And I, you know, I, I remember going over class actions uh, in Civ Pro back in law school, and it gives me a little bit of PTSD talking about this. So let's uh, let's go easy if we could. But it's um, I'm sure this is a very common question and uh, it's something you have to evaluate, which could change the whole dynamic of of the way the case goes. Oh, for sure. Um, so we always we always look at whether the case should be an individual case or a class or collective action. And I, you know, the difference between a class action and a collective action is a real thing. And that's probably its own podcast. So I'm not going to bore everybody with that explanation, yeah. but it's, they're similar things. But, uh, so sometimes we have potential clients who say, look, um, this is only happening to me. I'm not aware that this is happening to anybody else. Uh, this is, you know, my situation and I want to go forward as an individual and, and that's fine. And that's how we will tackle the case. Other times we'll have potential clients come to us and say, Hey, this is happening to me. I'm not getting paid correctly for whatever reason. And by the way, uh, this is also happening to 20 of my best friends at work. And so mm -hmm. I think it's happening to everybody. And so in that situation, it might make more sense to bring the case as a collective action or a class action on behalf of the whole group of people that are being affected. Yeah. And the way these cases work is you can just have one plaintiff file the case and move forward as a representative action. And that one plaintiff would then represent all of the workers who are similarly situated at mm -hmm. the company. In other words, if they're all being paid the same way or being paid incorrectly in the same way, then mm -hmm. that case can proceed as a class or a collective action. So we're always, evaluating that as well, you know, not only what claims or what court, but how is this case going to proceed? Is it going to be an individual case or a class action? So I think that just as an example of what it might be like, if I come to you and I say, Jesse, listen, I look at my, my paycheck and you say, Justin, do you think anyone else is having a situation like this where they're not being paid? Would you send me back to some of the other employees to ask, or would you say, you know, let's let's reach out to them? I know that ethically speaking, we're uh, we have some limitations of what we're allowed to do, but if we're trying to investigate whether it's a class or a, a single situation, what would be the next step there? Because I, I would find that pretty interesting. As the plaintiff, do you send me back out to ask and and start gathering names and information and asking people, um, or are you? you know, kind of facilitating these questions on your own? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. So typically when a potential client says, Hey, this is happening to me and 20 of my best friends or whatever, mm -hmm. um, they will, you know, offer up, uh, other people that want to speak with us. And so, yeah. you know, we'll speak with them too and collect their documents. And, you know, if it's appropriate, we'll have them join the case at the outset. Yeah. Um, you know, other times somebody will come to us and say, you know, I don't know that this is happening to anybody else, but it's happening to me. And I think it's probably happening to everybody else at the company, just the mm -hmm. way, you know, from what I've seen in my experiences in working there. Now we have, as if, if we're going to bring the case as a class action on that basis, and we think this is a company wide practice and it's a company wide problem, um, as class counsel for the case, we actually have a duty to investigate 
whether mm -hmm. this makes sense as a class action. So we might, um, in certain circumstances, ask the client, hey, uh, can you talk to one of your coworkers and have them uh, speak with us just about, you know, what their experience is at the, at the company? We just want to ask them questions, investigate what's actually going on, yeah. if their experience is similar. And that gives us the confidence to say, yeah, this should be a class action. And, you know, we can go ahead and, and take our one plaintiff and file the case as a representative action. And we'll have the confidence to know that yeah. we think this is actually happening to everybody. Yeah. So, so then, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say that that brings into a completely different situation where you have the duty to inform people and let them know that there could have been violations that they don't even know about. Um, so you're able to reach out to them. And I, I remember I've gotten these um, class action placards that say, you know, you were part of this group that, you know, you could be owed uh, X amount of dollars for this violation. Um, and and that, that makes a lot of sense too, because it's kind of as a, an officer of the court, I guess the court's duty here is to, and, and especially that legislation is to, we want to make sure that we are, are compensating people who have been aggrieved uh, through the Fair Labor Standards Act. And, and, um, and so it would be in the best interest of the court, of the legislation, of the, you know, uh, of the state or federal you know, government to make sure that everyone knows that they, they could be qualified for something like this too. Um, oh, absolutely. And, yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, so one of the things, one of the first things that we do with our client in a, in a wage and hour collective action or a class action is we will file a motion with the court and we will ask the court, Hey, uh, we think we need to send a notice to everybody who works at the company or who has worked in the company for the past three years. You can go back three years under the statute and, you know, judge, we think we ought to be able to send out this notice to all the employees let them know that this case is pending, mm -hmm. give them a chance to join the case if they want to. And as part of that motion, the representative plaintiff, the, the original person who came to us, will need to work with us to, to create a declaration or an affidavit mm -hmm. that we can submit to the court. And that affidavit basically tells the judge, hey, uh, I'm Jane Doe. I've worked at the company for X number of years. This is what I've seen. This is mm -hmm. what's happening to me. I think it's happening to other people based on what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And that affidavit gets filed with a motion um, in support of the motion and where we ask the judge to send out the notice. Yeah. And so that declaration takes a little bit of effort from the client to help us draft that declaration. And we've got to make sure it's, it's very accurate factually. Um, and it's not, it's not based on speculation, right? This has got to be something that's personal knowledge to yeah. our client. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. And it's in the best interest of the individual and all others who have been aggrieved to bring forward a class action. I, at least I imagine I, I'm maybe this is more of a question. When you have people who are claiming that an employer has done something wrong, that should, in my mind, hold a lot more weight than just one person who's making a claim against an employer. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So, you know, I always say there's power in numbers, right? Everybody's heard that term. And when, when you show up at the courthouse with 20 people and they're all claiming that they're not paid correctly for the same reasons or very similar reasons, uh, that's, that holds a lot more power than just one person showing up um, and saying yeah. they want to start a class action. Yeah. Not, not to say that that's not powerful, but when you have 20 people saying the same thing, yeah. in my experience, the employer's got to take that much more seriously um, yeah. than they otherwise would. When there's uh, when there's smoke, there's fire, and obviously it doesn't mean that someone is is guilty, but it's uh, when you have someone, a lot of different people making the exact same claim. Well, that's something you probably want to investigate and and get into it. And once you get into this process, now say we we are certified as a class um, or even as an individual, and what's the next step once that um, say actually let's let's go back to Jane Doe and she's filing this motion um, with her affidavit uh, speaking about. Uh, what she's seen in, in her workplace and what the employer might be doing. What happens next? Say we get certified as a class, do we get, we get on calendar and then go straight to uh, some kind of mediation or is, are we going to try and work things out? Or is this like the collection process of all paperwork? Um, how does it work from there? Sure. So if that motion gets granted and the judge allows us to send out the notice to everybody, 
usually there's a 30 or 60 or maybe even 90 day period for uh, employees at the company to join the case. Okay. Uh, and so all they have to do is submit this one page form and they join the case. And at the deadline, you'll know how many people are in your case. And so once you know how many people are going to be in the case moving forward, then that makes sense to go ahead and uh, create a case schedule for the case. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is the court will set a scheduling conference. Uh, the client may or may not need to attend that with us. Usually not, but sometimes. And, you know, we'll work with the other side with the attorneys for the company and create some kind of a discovery schedule uh, for the case to proceed with discovery. Mm-hmm. And so this is the the part where you see on TV and movies where you have boxes and boxes of documents being brought in. And that's where <laughs> you and your staff uh, at Summer Schwartz are going to start looking through all the paperwork and trying to find the violations, get a good, clear cut understanding of all the evidence and, and really present your case based on that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so this is really where uh, the plaintiff or our client has to do the most work in the case uh, in the discovery process. And so the way this typically works is you'll have um, a couple forms of discovery. You'll have what we call written discovery, mm. and then we'll have depositions. And talking about the written discovery for a moment. So written discovery basically is the party's chance to ask each other questions and request documents and other information through written papers. And so mm. there's a couple things. One is the interrogatories and what an inter- interrogatory is, if you don't know, is uh, written questions sent to the other side that they have to answer under oath. And so what happens is the employer will send uh, 20, 25 interrogatories to our client. And our client's going to have to work with our paralegals to go through those questions and answer mm-hmm. them to the best of their ability. And at the end, once we have all the answers, how we like them and, and, you know, truthful and thorough, uh, the client will then need to sign off on those interrogatories um, and swear that they're true and to the best of their knowledge, accurate. Yeah. And uh, we also get a chance to do that with the defendant, right? So we get to send a similar document to the employer with our questions and they have to Mm -hmm. do the same thing for us. So uh, that's one piece of the written discovery. And that's, that's usually somewhat time intensive for the client, but it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, our paralegals are very good at making that a very efficient process, uh, making it as easy as possible uh, for our clients to get through that. It's, it's really not too bad. And the second big part of the written discovery is the request for uh, documents. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we get to send requests for documents to the employer, requesting pay stubs, time records, policies, those kinds of things. And then the employer will likewise get to send a request for documents to our clients. And, you know, again, our clients will work with our paralegals to pull together any documents that they have, which, you know, usually in my experience is not nearly uh, a complete set of documents, at least compared to what the employer has, but we have an obligation to produce those. So the, our client will be, you know, asked and expected to go through you know, all the places where they could have these documents and at least look for them and then produce anything that they have uh, to our office. And then we'll go ahead and and send those over to the employer. I I strive to be organized, but I am not the most organized. Like what this, what you're explaining there, I imagine you need someone who is extremely organized um, and can kind of catalog everything in a very nice, neat and orderly way. and I am very lucky at my firm that I have uh, staff that help me with that as well, too, uh, and also my wife. Uh, but it's such an important thing to get all these things because this tells the story. This is the this is where, in my mind, where everything comes from, where the the basis of the litigation comes from, and it really tells the story of the case. And where you come in after that is to explain here is all the evidence of the violations. And this is why we're going to win. Um, and so you need to have that kind of organization to make sure that it, it does explain exactly what the employer did. Uh, but I imagine it's just so much paperwork a lot of the times that it just kind of makes your head spin. It certainly can be, uh, yeah. uh, depending on the size of the employer and the, the size of the, the class. You know, mm-hmm. Some of these uh, cases can be very, very complicated and very document intensive. 
And so, you know, thankfully at our firm, we're, we're blessed to have uh, a great staff. We've got numerous paralegals, uh, legal assistants, intake specialists, uh, associate attorneys, partners. Uh, we have a whole team of people that, uh, you know, take care to go through all these documents and make sure we understand what's going on in the case, uh, mm -hmm. make sure nothing gets missed. Um, you know, also to help our clients, you know, sometimes we have clients that have lots of documents. And so, yeah. you know, our staff is very helpful in helping our own clients, you know, sort through their own documents so we can produce, you know, what's relevant and, and responsive and discovery. And so, you know, you really do need a good team of, of people to go through this uh, process, including mm -hmm. the interrogatories and the request to produce. And I think we have that. So at this point, Jesse, once we get to the written discovery, we do the interrogatories, um, we answer all these questions. Uh, we move on to the next step, which is depositions. Is that right? Right. So once the parties have all the written discovery in place, then we can move on to depositions. Uh, so just very quickly, uh, depositions are, it's an event in the case where you sit down and actually get to ask the other side questions in person and that person or the witness is under oath while you get to ask these questions and so you know from from our perspective we uh, typically like to take depositions of the company employees including you know we might get a company representative to come in and speak as to the policy and practices at the company mm -hmm. uh, we might get some supervisors in ask them questions about the actual day-to-day -day activities, you know, on the floor or in the office or whatever the case might be. And sometimes we'll even bring in uh, the HR people or the, the payroll staff and ask them questions about, you know, how they do payroll in the company. And, you know, these are very important pieces of the case because this is your chance to actually ask the employer under oath uh, certain questions about the case. And, you know, you're making a record of that testimony under oath so that, you know, if you go to trial in the case, you know what the other side's going to say at trial. Mm -hmm. And if they deviate at trial, you'll have yeah. this other record you can kind of point back to and, and ask them why their answers are different or, or whatnot. Yeah. So um, you, you have, it's yeah. kind of like a three part uh, thing for a trial or at least two parts where you can say, all right, I have these interrogatories and you can use those in the deposition to say, well, why did you answer this way and let them kind of expound on that? And then you get into trial where you can have a very similar situation where you have maybe uh, someone who's contradicting themselves on an interrogatory or the deposition. Right. right. And, and the documents, you know, we'll put documents in front of them in the depositions, have them answer questions about the documents and it has the same effect, you know, at trial, you know, their answers are going to, are going to be relevant when it goes to trial. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, our clients are very, uh, we rely on our clients a lot for those depositions. So, you know, our clients are going to be in touch with us to talk about, you know, maybe some of the questions we should be asking about the company and how it operates. And maybe the supervisor was your direct supervisor. And we're going to want to know everything we can know about that yeah. supervisor from our own client. So our, our clients are going to be involved to some extent in the deposition process. And we're going to have to talk with them and uh, get as much information as we can. Yeah. And, you know, on the flip side of that, and my partner, Jason Thompson, will talk about this in, in the next part of this uh, podcast, uh, our own client has to sit for a deposition, right? And so, you know, there's a whole preparation uh, for that and a whole process for that. And in my opinion, the plaintiff's deposition is probably the most important event in the entire case. Um, so I'll let Jason go into that. I won't steal his thunder, but, you know, Jason will will be on with you, uh, I think, in the next uh, week or two to, to talk to you about that. And I'll let him uh, explain that and how that works. But, you know, very important part of the discovery process for sure. Yeah. And we're not even we're, what would you say? This is at this point, this is maybe halfway through the process or not even halfway through because so many different things can happen that it could really swing the case one way or another, especially if we go to trial. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The depositions, you know, are, are usually a turning point in the case. It, you know, that really opens up everybody's eyes as to what the testimony is going to be for trial. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, at that point you have a chance to, you know, resolve the case one way or another. Um, 
But again, I think Jason's going to speak with you about that stuff and I'll, I'll let him do that. There's, there's so much information that, you know, being only halfway through, I'm really excited to hear the, the second part of this and, and go over the second part of this on how, how, how it is to be a, um, a plaintiff in a lawsuit against your employer and a day in the life of the whole process. Um, and, and Jason Thompson is coming up uh, on the next episode in a couple of weeks. So we're going to be talking about uh, not just depositions, but also mediation and, and how the case can ultimately play out and, and hopefully avoid trial because that would be ideal for most people. But sometimes it ends up going to trial and we need all of this front end work to be done in order to ensure that you have the best chance possible at trial. So this is, uh, it's been a great, great and very informative show. Um, thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate joining us uh, for, to talk about all this information. My pleasure. It's very nice to speak with you today. I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back again sometime. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait. Uh, once again, my name is Justin Isaac, and this is Overdue Overtime, uh, presented by Summer Schwartz. This has been A Day in the Life of a Plaintiff, Part 1. Um, and we are going to uh, be speaking in a couple of weeks about A Day in the Life of a Plaintiff Part 2 and how the rest of this case might actually come about. If you do have a claim, if you think you have a claim, you should definitely go check out Summer Schwartz uh, at summerspc.com, S-O-M-M-E-R-S-P-C.com for more information or to speak with one of those intake specialists that we were talking about. And uh, hopefully, if you do have a claim, you can... Uh, talk to Jesse and, and figure out how to best be compensated um, and uh, take it from there. So thank you again for everyone uh, who listened again. This is our second podcast of Overdue Overtime. My name is Justin Isaac and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. If you have comments, questions, and show ideas, visit summerspc.com. Overdue Overtime is produced at the IVC Media Lab in San Diego, California. Your host is Justin Isaac. Jessica Garcia serves as general manager, while Elia Ramos is the creative director. Lena Alvarez assists with production, and Chad Peace is president and founding partner. This has been a presentation of Summer Schwartz on the Olus Media Network. Olas Media.